0: Well, if we haven't met yet, my name's Cheryl, and I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, this week I was up at Frontier Lodge for several days, so um, if I start to, like, not make sense, it's because I'm pretty sleep-deprived, um, but I do want to say, like, amazing things are happening at that camp, so um, if you, if you uh, pray in your life, then be praying for um, the kids that are working there. We have several teenagers from our youth group who are up there um, working as counselors and in the kitchen and stuff, so pray for them. Pray for the kids who are attending, that they would meet Jesus um, in, in very real ways. Um, and they, those kids are working hard, so keep them in your prayers. Um, but, so I went up to camp with a couple of awesome ladies from Westview and, um, on the way back, I asked them a question that I love asking people because it tells you a lot about them. I said, what's your guilty pleasure TV show? (laughs) I know it's super deep, right? I don't know why I like asking people that. It just tells you a lot about them. And so um, we started talking about reality TV shows. I won't tell you which ones because um, I want to respect their privacy. And I didn't tell them I was going to be saying this. And and I'm. if you're listening, I didn't actually intend to put this in my sermon, but here it is. So um, we started talking about reality TV shows. Is anyone here willing to admit that they watch a reality TV show from time to time? Anyone? Yeah, I, I do it. Yep. Yeah, thank you for your honesty. Okay, so... Um, So, reality TV shows are crazy. Like, there are some out there that are really, really, like the premise of some of those shows are insane. I'm like, who comes up with this stuff? And I'm not going to get into those details, but one of the things that is a common thread in in those shows, and also in the social media that we all consume, and and just in our culture in general, is the fact that people want to make themselves look important. They want to feel important. They want people to like their stuff. They want, you know, lots of followers. They want to go viral. They'll do whatever it takes to do that. Everyone's trying to just, you know, be as important as they can. Show people that they're the heroes of their stories. And it's a bent that we all have. Even when we we pick up the Bible and we read it, sometimes we read it as if it's about us. And today we're going to be in John 5. And as I was preparing for this sermon, I, I listened to a different sermon um, on a chunk of this passage. And, and the pastor was like, okay, so this sermon's going to be a lot more about Jesus than it is about us. So I just want to warn us about that up front that we're going to be looking a lot at Jesus, a little bit at us, but a lot at Jesus. And that's okay. Um, so we're going to get into the story of what's happening, and then we'll, um, we'll go from there. So I just want to review what Adrian spoke about last week in the first part of John 5, where Jesus heals a man at the pool of Bethesda who couldn't move and hadn't been able to move for like 38 years. Like, just imagine that. That's, that's in- intense. And all Jesus did was say, pick up your mat and go home. And that's what the man did. And, and, and yes, that's amazing. And, and we like to think that that's so cool. But there are some people that, that witnessed that who were not so happy about what had happened. Because all of this happened on the Sabbath. And in Jewish uh, tradition and Jewish law, carrying anything, going more than a certain distance, doing any kind of work on the Sabbath was forbidden. It was against the law. And so Jesus had not only done some work on the Sabbath, the work of healing this man, but then he told that man to pick up some stuff and to, to go a certain distance to his house, and that was also work. And so the Jewish leaders are seeing Jesus doing this, and they're like, nope. So they start to um, persecute Jesus for his actions they start to like you know start to attack him they're not thrilled with what he's what he's doing and saying and so today we're picking up on Jesus response to the persecution from these Jewish leaders and we're gonna start reading in John chapter 5 in verse 17 in his defense Jesus said to them my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working So Jesus is like, I'm just going to heap it on, guys. You're already not happy with me. I'm going to go farther. God's my father, and I'm always working, or he's always working, and I am too. And now for all of us sitting in this room, that's good news, because we need the unbroken work of the Father in our lives and in our world, and we need that to be the case. We need God to be working. We need Him to, to hold everything together because if He doesn't, then we don't exist. And it's good news for us that He doesn't stop working. And the work that He's doing is the restoration of all creation to the, the way that it was before sin distorted it. So let's be encouraged that, by that today. Whether we see it or not, God's working and He, he always will be. Um, he's working through the Spirit, He's working through the Son, He's always at work. But the Jews that heard this, they weren't so happy about it. It wasn't such good news to them because it was, it was breaking what they, were, they had believed for such a long time. In fact, they went to the opposite end of the spectrum and they were like, let's kill him. <laughs> like, that was like the, the other side of what you could, you could react to this. And, and so we see that they didn't respond to Jesus' words well. Here's what they they said in in verse 18. For those reasons, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Breaking the Sabbath was bad enough for them, but then calling yourself equal with God was, was worthy of death in their eyes, punishable by death according to their law. Because Judaism is a monotheistic religion. There's one God... And you can't have any other gods for a fallen finite human being you know a mere mortal to call himself god to make himself equal with god was like unimaginable to them and punishable by death because in in exodus 20 verse 3 god had commanded them that they should have no other gods before him and so jesus is coming along and he's breaking this paradigm down and and they don't know what to do with it and so they're intent on killing him We've already seen in the book of John that Jesus knows all men. He knows their hearts, he knows their thoughts. And so he knew what these people were, were, um, were planning and instead of de-escalating the situation, he's like, okay, so like, you, you don't believe me? Well, let's just do this, guys. Let's like, buckle up, we're gonna go in. And uh, he starts to explain and build a case about why he's the son of God, why he has authority over the whole world, why he can say he's equal to God and what that means for the world. And he confronts these beliefs that they've had about God and how they're missing the point of everything, even though they think that they've got it all figured out. And I think that today, when we look at Jesus' defense about how he's the son of God and the authority he has, we might also get confronted on some things that we're believing Because Jesus is going to explain to them and to us just how much authority he has in the world, the range of that authority. And we might just get convicted or confronted with the view that we have of Jesus or how we respond to him. Because some of us, are all for you know following Jesus as long as we um, as long as he doesn't disrupt our lives too much as long as we have a certain degree of autonomy and we can still feel like we don't have to sacrifice too much and we can be comfortable. But when Jesus starts to upend our personal beliefs and 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 what disrupt what we want and what we think is best for us and the plans that we have for our lives get threatened, then. We find out if we're actually believing in Jesus, the Son of God, or our own version of Jesus. We find out if, if we're believing in Jesus, the Son of God. And so there's a lot of doubt in the world as to whether Jesus was the Son of God, and about even whether the Bible actually claims that he's the Son of God because there's a very popular book out there called The Da Vinci Code that popularized this idea that actually Jesus didn't claim to be the Son of God. And actually the Bible doesn't teach that, but that the early Christians in 340 AD created this teaching and made Jesus the Son of God. And that's very popular in our world today and there's a lot of religions and cults out there who will say the same thing, Jesus Jesus is a good teacher, He's, he's a good guy, he's not the Son of God. And so if you're ever in a conversation with someone who's saying that to you, this chapter is a good chapter to bring them to because Jesus is claiming to be the son of God here and he has a lot of good evidence to back him up. And so for the people who are hearing Jesus speak at the time, he is making the craziest claim ever because what he's doing is he's claiming that he is equal with the God who brought them out of Egypt, the God who made a covenant with them, the God who gave them their law, It's very scandalous. It's very problematic for them. And it can be problematic for us. Because Jesus comes to us and he says, this is the path to life. And some of us think we've got the path to life already figured out. But Jesus is going to say to some of us, you're not on the path of life and you you need to get on it. And we're not going to like to hear that. We might think we've already got it figured out and that, you know, we think that getting the things we want, when we want them, and how we want them, that's how we get life. That's how we get fulfillment. And Jesus is challenging that. But that's the world we live in and that's the message that we hear from um, our culture every second of every day. And in this passage, we're also faced with the question of who Jesus is. Because if he's just a good philosopher or he's a good teacher or, you know, he's your personal Santa Claus or whatever, then... We can make that version of Jesus do anything we want. So we like that. We like that kind of Jesus. But if he's God, then we have to answer the question. We have to look at ourselves and and ask, how are we responding to him? How do we respond to Jesus? Because getting that question right affects every part of our lives. It affects how we do singleness, dating, marriage, parenting, how we do our jobs, how we relate to other people, how we minister in the church, et cetera, et cetera. Every part of our lives is affected by how we answer that question. And so as I go through Jesus' arguments today for why he's a son of God, I want you to keep that question in mind. How am I responding to Jesus How do I respond to him? Because it's the most important thing about you. So let's get into Jesus' um, case for his authority. In verse 19, he said, Jesus gives him this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son of God can do nothing by himself, for he can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. So what we're seeing here is is a loving apprenticeship relationship between Jesus and the Father. And Jesus is saying it this way because it's something that his hearers would have identified with because in that culture and in many cultures around the world even today, it's very common for sons to take on the father's trade, to do the family business. And so they spend hours and hours and hours with their father learning how to do the skills, learning the knowledge that they need in order to do the trade, in order to master it, in order to be able to be called a master tradesman themselves. And Jesus himself did this on earth because he learned carpentry from his earthly father, Joseph. And so he, um, he also identified very deeply with this apprenticeship concept. But it goes deeper for Jesus because he also apprenticed from God the Father as the Son of God. He's saying in this passage that he's identifying with God. He isn't claiming to be equal with God in the sense that like he's a different God or he's independent from God. He's saying, I am identifying with God the Father. I have learned from him everything. I learned, learned how he thinks. I can't do anything by myself. I act on my Father's initiation. I receive authority from the Father and then I go and I do the will of, of the Father. That's his identity, to do the will of the Father. And I think sometimes I read about Jesus' life and I'm like, oh, he's just going around doing what he wants, I'm gonna heal this guy and I'm gonna do this thing, you know? And, and, and that's not what's happening. There is a real obedience to his life. He's saying, I'm not doing this by myself. I'm doing it to point you to the Father. I'm doing all of this stuff so that you will see who the Father is through my actions, And that's only possible because of this perfect relationship, this apprenticeship between the father and the son. The father's lovingly show him everything that he does and the son's obeying because he loves the father. It's a perfect identity of will and action. And in those things they are the same. And we believe that the father is not the son and the son is not the father but they don't disagree on identity, will, or action. They're perfectly unified. And there's a challenge in there for us because Jesus' life is characterized by obedience to the Father. And so I ask you, is your life characterized by that same obedience? Or are you just living according to what you wanna do? When God calls, Jesus does. And when he speaks, Jesus listens. Is that how we can say we model our lives? And then Jesus says, the Father is going to show the Son even greater works so that we will be amazed. We will be amazed. All of the things that Jesus has done, all of the things that uh, we have seen so far in the book of John, all of the things that he's going to do later on, they're all meant to amaze us. Or another translation says, so that you may marvel. But are we amazed when we look at Jesus? If we approach the Bible like it's just like a newspaper or like a textbook or a rule book or a guidebook or whatever, um, we can miss out on the wonder. We can fail to see Jesus and marvel at him. And I do that a lot because I like coming to the Bible and like if you see my personal Bible at home that I never bring to church because it's too big, but um, I like circle stuff and highlight and write stuff and I, like, I really like studying and getting into the nitty gritty of like, what, what the passage is saying. And I always feel like I'm like, oh, I'm so smart when I finish this passage and I feel like I learned something new, but has it changed my heart? I always have to ask myself that: um, What's God calling me to in that passage that I just studied and marked up? Has it caused me to be amazed by God? When you read the Bible, does it cause you to be amazed by God? All of these things are in the Bible so that we can be amazed by God, because He is amazing. <laughs> and so, is your is your heart captivated by God's beauty? Are you blown away? is your heart overflowing because of what he's done, what he's doing and what he will do. A W Tozer wrote that the most important question of all of life is what comes into your mind when you say God. So, who is God to you? Is he distant? Is he like the guy in the Simpsons? is he just like the white beard guy in the sky? Is he a killjoy? Is he your personal vending machine? Are you afraid that like, he, you're going through life and he's just watching you and like I'm waiting for you to just do one thing too many, one bad thing too many and then I'm gonna step on you and you're done. Do we walk through life feeling like we've disappointed him and that we have to like work really hard to get back to his approval, to get back to a place where we're right with him? Do you feel like he's silent in your life? How do you view God? Or are you amazed by him? Do you marvel at him? I'm sure there are some people who, here who do, and, and uh, I hope that we all want more of that, because that's what God wants our reaction to him to be. And if it's not, it's because we don't know him. But here's the good news. In this perfect unified relationship of identity, will, and action between Jesus and the Father, Jesus is acting in a way to reveal the Father to us. And so if you feel like you don't really know the Father and you're not really amazed, all you have to do is look at Jesus. And he'll show you what the Father is like. And as Jesus keeps speaking, he elaborates just on how far the authority that he's been given by the Father goes, how much authority he's gained from this apprenticeship relationship. So we're going to keep reading verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear this voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Now again, the Jewish people would have been scandalized by this because they passionately believed two things, that life came from God at the beginning of time and that judgment belonged to God and would happen at the end of time. And so this is why they want to kill Jesus because they have no framework for receiving what he's saying right now. And here's Jesus doubling down again, and he's saying, you know, like, I've been given both life and judgment. Those things no longer belong to God the Father. They belong to me. He's given them to me. And it's now my responsibility. And this is all happening in that perfect, unified relationship where the Son does the will of the Father. And the Father has life, but he's given it to the Son. And the Son gives it to whoever he chooses. And we've seen that already through the book of John. You know, He gave the living water to the woman at the well and he changed her life. And then uh, later on in in chapter 4 of John, he healed a dying boy so that he could live. Later on in in the book of John, in chapter 11, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead and we're really going to see the authority that he has over death and life because he's just going to say, Lazarus, come on out. And Lazarus is just going to come out even though he's been dead for three days. It's important to realize that this doesn't mean that the Father's authority is diminished in any way because it's actually helping to bring the Father into focus for us. Because the more clearly we see Jesus, the more clearly we see the Father. Colossians 1.15 says that the, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so when we see Jesus more clearly as we read through the gospels and as we we study them and look at how he lives and we we know God more. And so this is the invitation for us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, to know him more as we know Jesus more, and to receive the life that is in Jesus and in his name. So remember the question that I asked you at the beginning: how do you respond to Jesus? When we talk about life in his name, we're not just talking about, like, oh, existence and, you know, my 75 to 100 years of life and then my life ends. We're talking about abundant, full, mind blowing life that lasts for eternity. And, like, we often think about life and we're like, okay, our death ends life. But actually, if you're a Jesus follower, the second you die, your life begins, you're alive again. In verse 28, Jesus says, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to, to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself by him who sent me. I'm taking a drink for a dramatic pause. Um, so Jesus has life in himself and, and he also has judgment. And the father no longer judges. All that judgment is given to the son, to Jesus, and Jesus is saying that there's gonna be a day when we're all gonna hear his voice. He's gonna speak and everyone's gonna hear it. And those who are already dead will come out of the grave and those who are alive will join them and will all stand before Jesus. And in that moment, there are only two options. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Now, I know this can sound terrifying and confusing, and my mind always goes to like, okay, what are the things I've done? You know, have I done more good or have I done more evil? Do I need to, like, up my game somewhere? What have I done with my life? Um, what, do I, what do I do to make sure that, I've, that I rise to live? It can make us really afraid. John Piper Piper says, God intends that the one who judges the world will will have been a slain lamb, a crucified man. The judging son of God at the last day must first be a suffering son of man. And if we ask why must our judge be a man, a suffering man, I think the answer is that God deems it fitting that human beings be judged by one who knows what it's like to be human. The one who's going to judge us knows what it's like to be human. He knows the pain, the joy, the sorrow, the loneliness. He knows what it's like to be tempted in every way. We read that in Hebrews. And he went to the cross and he bore all of our sin so that we could know God. So that on that final day, when we stand before him, we're insufficient in ourselves, we haven't done enough good, we haven't done enough to measure up. But if we follow Jesus we can claim his perfect record as our own and so we don't have to fear that I have a sinless record and you can too if you accept it from him and so we're going to look into his eyes and he's going to look into ours and he's going to ask the question have you believed me have you believed in me And if we answer yes to that question, we get life. We get new heaven, new earth, new delights, things that are going to blow our minds that we haven't even thought of yet. Like, think of the best thing that you love in life. It's not even going to compare to what's going to be available to us. But if we answer no to that question, we get judgment. We get the removal of God's grace, the eternal presence of his wrath. Every joy that we have in life right now, even the little things that we take for granted will be removed And so again, I ask you, what's your response to Jesus? Now, Jesus goes on to list four witnesses that support his case because he knows all men, he knows their hearts, he knows their thoughts, and he knows what they're thinking right now and the objections that they have. And so I'm just going to go through these four witnesses quickly. In verse 31, he says, If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. But there is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. And commentators believe that he's referring to the Holy Spirit here. You know, we've been talking a lot about God the Father and God the Son. And those of you who are sitting here and know about the Trinity are like, what about the Holy Spirit? Here's the Holy Spirit. And of course, further in the book of John, Jesus is going to do some teaching on the Holy Spirit. But it's the Spirit who does the work of illumination in our hearts, who shows us that we need God. He shows us who God is. Helps us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And what Jesus did for us on the cross. And then he testifies to us about whether or not we're a son or daughter of God. And so if you have the desire to follow Jesus, if you want to know him more, if you want to submit your life to him more and more, that's the spirit testifying to you that you are a son or daughter of God. And regardless of how well you're doing at those things, He testifies to us whether or not we're the son or or daughter of God. We struggle to live out our faith in a fallen world. We're not going to get it right, but the Holy Spirit will let us know if we're adopted by God. The second witness is, is John the Baptist. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. John the Baptist lived his life to point to Jesus. That was the whole purpose of his life. And his life was a witness to many people around him. And for a while, they believed him, because it was exciting, because he was the first prophet to hit Israel in 400 years. So they'd had like 400 years of silence, and then John shows up, and they're like, yeah, let's, see, let's listen, And all he did was live for the kingdom, was 100% be sold out for Jesus, for letting people know that Jesus was coming and they needed to get ready. Do we live our lives that way? When Jesus says, I don't take the testimony of men, but it's for you guys to hear, it means that God uses our testimony in other people's lives to draw people to him. And it's something that's, very close to my heart and that I really try to be mindful of because I have several siblings who are not following Jesus because Christians have said terrible things to them, have really deeply hurt them, have done terrible things to them. And I know that they're not alone. Are we living in such a way that people look at our lives and they want to know the God that we follow? Are we living with joy? Are we living the abundant life that Jesus offers? Do we marvel at God? What we believe about Jesus affects how we live and and that witness is a witness to those around us for good or for bad. So we have the Spirit and we have John the Baptist and the third testimony is the works that Jesus has done himself. Verse 36, I have testimony weightier than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. So all of the things that they'd seen Jesus do up until this point is pointing to the fact that Jesus was sent by the Father. That he has authority over life and death and judgment and sickness and the weather and natural order and demons. He has authority over everything. And the Father Himself is testifying that to, to the truth that Jesus is his son because he's because of the works that, that Jesus is doing. And Jesus, or God in, in the book of John, is recreating the world through Jesus. And the restoration is coming. And they don't see it. And the fourth testimony is the scriptures themselves. Verse 39, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would have believed me for he wrote about me. Now again, all of this would have been a punch in the face to these Jewish leaders who were listening to Jesus, because they had memorized huge chunks of scriptures, books and books and books of scripture, and they were known for their knowledge of scripture, and they were seen as experts on who God was and what the scriptures meant for the people at their in their in their time, and they thought that they were on God's side in all of this, and that's why they're trying to kill Jesus. In their minds, they're fighting for God and for His law. But they were wrong. Through the Old Testament, God's people have read his words, but now in Jesus, they're seeing those words in flesh, embodied in a person dwelling among them, and they're still missing it. Jesus says, you don't actually know the Father's voice. You think you do, but you you don't know it. You don't recognize it. And you don't know what he looks like, even though you think you do. You know, he's been speaking through the scriptures and all the scriptures have been think- talking about me and you haven't recognized it. You haven't see- heard his voice. He's revealed himself in me, in my physical form and you don't recognize him. You don't know God like you think you know him and you don't love him like you think you love him. It's like that line from The Princess Bride where Inigo Montoya is like... <laughs> You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Sorry, I have a terrible accent. But Jesus is saying, you keep quoting these scriptures, but they do not mean what you think they mean. You think that reading your Bible, knowing what it says, that following the law is what's gonna save you. But all of those scriptures are actually just pointing to me. I'm what's gonna save you. I'm what's gonna give you Life. You're holding on to something that's never going to save you. You're getting it wrong. And then he brings Moses into the argument because the Jews were calling Jesus out for doing work on the Sabbath and for calling himself equal with God. And those are two things that Moses had written down in the law. And Moses was their guy. Moses was, they were like, okay, we're going to cite Moses because he's like the, he's like the guy that, that um, we base our entire way of living on, basically. And he's definitely on our side in this. And Jesus is saying, he's not, actually. He's not going to save you. He's going to condemn you. Because actually, what, Jesus, what Moses wrote is about me, and you still miss the point. They couldn't see it. They'd accumulated all this biblical knowledge, and they were completely missing the point of, Je- of Moses' writings. The Bible isn't about the Bible. The Bible is about Jesus. And that's why when I only approach the Bible to find out facts and to mark up the words and to think that I've learned something, I'm missing the point, just like the Jewish leaders. That if I don't come away looking at how the Bible reveals Jesus to me so that I can live in awe of him, I'm missing the point. And if I don't allow the Bible to be a mirror that it holds up so that I can see the, po- the points in my life where I'm not functionally submitting my life to him, then I'm missing the point. Pastor Matt Chandler says, if we're not reading the Bible in order to know, love, and make much of Jesus, we're not using the Bible as God intended. And that means we're no better than these Jewish leaders. Today I want to end where Jesus ends. In verse 47 he says, but since you do not believe what Moses wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? And I want to bring us back to that question I asked at the beginning. What's our response to Jesus? Who do we say he is? When we're raised out of our graves to stand before him and he asks us, have you believed in me? How are we going to respond? Do we believe that he's the son of God and that he's been given authority over life and judgment and everything else? And that's been given to him from the father? Do we live lives that reflect that? Some of us here need to respond to Jesus and, and follow him for the first time. And some of us need to respond in obedience to something he's asking us to do, like Leela who's getting baptized soon. She's responding in obedience today. Are we willing to lay down things that we haven't been that haven't been correct in our belief systems? The things that we've been living for that don't matter. Are we willing to let Jesus mess up our lives in order for us to know him more and to make him known? Are we willing to align our lives with the fact that everything in our world is about Jesus? Are we willing to acknowledge that we're not the hero of the story? Are we willing to die to ourselves to be corrected? and convicted by Jesus as many times as it takes. Submitting our lives to Jesus and submitting ourselves to him can be counterintuitive. It can feel like death. But when we allow Jesus to do the work in our lives that he needs to do, we actually are met with unlimited grace and steadfast love And boundless kindness. And he gives that to us over and over and over and over again. It feels like death, but it's actually the best kind of life. And so I ask you, how do you respond to Jesus? Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would send your spirit to illuminate our hearts. With what we've heard today. That if there are people hearing this who don't believe, I pray that they would. And if there are people hearing this who need to get back on the path of life, I pray that they would. Father, I pray that you would move in us to live lives that are sold out so that many would know you. I pray that you would move in us to lay down the things that we're holding on to because they think that they'll give us life. And so that when we lay down those things, that we can take hold of true life. Unlimited, abundant, joyful life that you're offering. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: All right, friends. At this point, uh, we're going to have a time of discussion, Q&A, uh, the text line you'll see on the screen. Uh, is there anyone here in the sanctuary that has a, a question they'd like to pose based on anything heard today, or really we open it up to just anything? <laughs> There's no parameters of what you can and can't ask here, which makes it interesting. interesting for us. <laughs> And we do our best to to answer. Okay. Uh, Oh, Mr. Witcher over here has a has a question. I'll go to the text line also. So. Sure. You mentioned the verse a couple times where it said uh, that Jesus said that Moses had spoken of Him. What what did Moses say about Jesus? Like how did he refer to Jesus?
0: There's a lot in the in the Torah that points to Jesus, and so they were they were following the entire Torah. So if you remember a few weeks ago, Moses, um, like the, the, there's a story in the Torah about like how. Um, the Israelites were complaining about what God was doing. And so he uh, brought uh, poison, God sent poisonous snakes to bite them and to um, and if you got bitten, then you were going to die. And then um, they asked for um they asked for deliverance from that for Moses and so Moses went to God and God said raise the snake up on the stick and then if people look at it then they will um, then they'll find life and so Moses did that and that's a that's a picture of, of Jesus um, and there is a lot of um, the, the law that um, that Moses wrote about was not actually just for the sake of like, hey, follow these rules. It was the best way to live in order to uh, prepare themselves for Jesus, for his coming, to be able to, to be living for the kingdom.
1: Yeah, and I'm actually going to add something that I think is really fascinating. So... Question, when did Moses talk about Jesus? Moses, he's most known, of course, for coming down with the the tablet and the Ten Commandments, right? Well, later, um, closer to when Moses died, he was speaking to the people. Um, This is Deuteronomy chapter 18, and he says... uh, he says the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your fellow Israelites you must listen to him for this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said let us hear the voice of the Lord. let us let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see his, this great fire any more lest we die. The Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. So that's so fascinating. It's much of what Cheryl talked about today where Jesus said, what did he say? Like, I just do what my father tells me. I speak, you know, what he says. That's what Moses said. Someone is coming, and he's going to do just that. He's going to speak what, what God tells him. But what's really interesting here is what, if you caught it, what Moses said to the people is, this is what you asked for. Do you remember that day? And if you go back and read Exodus 20, when they heard the commands of God, the law, they were all like, we can't bear this. We can't bear this. We need someone to intercede, is what they basically said. They said, Moses, you talk to God. We can't handle it. And what they were saying was, we can't handle the law of God. The law of God is too weighty for us. It's too high. We can't. We don't live up to those standards. And so here Moses was saying, it was good for you to ask that, that you understood. You understood that you needed an intercessor. You understood that you needed a savior. He's going to come. And so it's really, really, really fascinating when you see how the whole Bible ties together like that. So um, any other questions in this room? I'm going to ask Cheryl one of the questions that came in through the text line in the the meantime. Oh. Oh, you have one right there ready. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead.
0: Good morning. In Genesis 1, when God created the animals, it just says he created them and it was good. When he created man, he said that he breathed his spirit into him. My question is, what, what comfort is there for someone who has lost a beloved pet from, from the Bible? How, how do we, what hope can we have for comfort? That's a really good question. Um, my brain's, I'm trying to get my brain working. Um, I, I think that um, I find comfort in the fact that the new creation is going to restore everything that, that we have ever wanted. Um, everything that we didn't know we want, that is, is what we're going to get. And, and I don't know that um, we're going like, to get our pets back in the new creation, but I think that we can have hope in the fact that God is going to meet every desire that we need and there's not going to be any more sorrow or pain or suffering, uh, no more death. And I think that gives me hope and I hope it gives you hope.
1: I heard a uh an author say once and I thought this was really interesting. He said I, I forget his name, but he said uh like his highest like joy is when his father used to coach him for, you know, playing baseball and then later he became a baseball coach, but his father had died and his father wasn't there and he said like the the greatest thing he can imagine is coaching baseball with his father right, you know, by his side. And basically the question was like, is that going to be there in heaven? Will I be, will I do that in heaven? And he said, I don't know, but it will satisfy that longing and so much more. And so really the question is, will our pets be there in heaven with us? We don't know. Bible doesn't really give us that info, but I can tell you that, you won't be longing for anything. There won't be, there, there's not going to be a feeling of, of longing, whether the pets are there or not. Um, okay, uh, here's something. We got a lot of questions through the text line, so I'm sorry if I don't get to yours. In John 5, 24, uh, Jesus says, those who believed in whom he sent him, those who believed in whom he sent has he- eternal life. He didn't say those who believed in Jesus himself will have eternal life. What about those who claim that they know the Father, the Creator, the Most Holy, but they were fed the lie or misled to believe that Jesus is not God's Son?
0: Well, Jesus is saying in that verse that he's, I mean, in the context of that chapter, that he is the one who who God sent. And so when he says, when you believe in the one in whom he sent, he's talking about himself, because that's what he's been talking about that whole chapter. And so... um, that's the one that we, we need to believe in in order to have life. The other people who come along do not have the same um, credentials to back themselves up. They, do not, they can't say the things that Jesus said in this chapter to be true. And, and so we need to be careful and we need to know our scriptures and we need to know what God says about Jesus and what Jesus says about God and what Jesus says about us and our world in order to be able to, to recognize when false people come and say, I'm God, because later on in the chapter, um, I didn't go into it because we, we didn't have time, but there's a, a verse, Jesus says, um, something to the effect of like, other people come to you, and, and you're happy to accept them, and that's because those people are coming and saying what those people want to hear. You know, they're, they're, they're tickling their ears, as, as the old saying says, and, and they're, they're like, oh, like, they're, they're offering things that they might not be able to deliver on, but they sound really good. And so those people are happy to to listen to to, to those people. And so, again, knowing the truth is, is really important in that case.
1: Yep. And so something you see in the Bible, because as the scriptures that Cheryl talked about today, like believing in Jesus is um, life and salvation comes through believing. And what you often see is there's a, a, a moral equivalency that is often like designated to believing and that's kind of strange Um, but one thing that Jesus said and it might even been in the chapter that you read I can't remember where it is but um, uh, Jesus said if anyone seeks to do the will of God he will know if my words are of my own authority. So what Jesus is basically saying is if you're actually seeking God okay If you're not doing just like the fake religion to make others think you're good or the religion to just make yourself feel self-righteous, but if you're actually seeking God, you're going to know if my words are of my own authority or if I am actually speaking for God. In a similar vein, Jesus said, all who seek, find. So when it comes to false teachers, those who might be seeking God, but they're currently deceived under a false belief system that is not based on Jesus? Will those people be condemned? And if you apply Jesus' words, it's basically, God will find a way to those who are are genuinely seeking him. They will, maybe, maybe not yet, but a a missionary will come. Sometimes you hear of people even having dreams. They were seeking God, a point in their life uh, where they had a dream that awakened them to the truth. God will find a way, and there will be none who are lost who are seeking the truth. Um, uh, I think we're ready over there with a a question.
2: Hi, Cheryl. Um, You said what we believe affects the way we live. And so in a world that we see um, that's moving constantly towards values that are opposite than what we know of in the Bible, I see a movement in Christian circles towards purity and keeping whole and making sure nothing gets diluted. Um, at the same time, I feel like that leads us to sticking in a holy huddle. So, I'm wondering, in practical terms, like what biblical guidance can we lean on so that we can be effective in the world and yet not gather in holy huddles telling every everybody out there, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And, you know, this isn't for you.
0: Yeah, I think um, being... As, as the the verse says, being in the world and not of the world. Um, we need to make an effort as Christians to make sure we're not in those holy huddles because they're not usually, it just becomes an echo chamber and it's not usually helpful for us when we're only hearing from ourselves like we're we're losing touch with the world we're losing our ability to speak into the things that are happening in our culture Um, I would say to make an effort I would recommend to make an effort to be out speaking to people but to be embodying the love of Jesus and the grace of Jesus that we ourselves received and not be the person who's like oh you shouldn't be doing that and like you know the Holy Spirit's going to convict them and, and we have the responsibility of living our testimonies before them, just like John the Baptist of being sold out. And that means, you know, the holy huddle is more comfortable for us sometimes. But we need to be willing to give up our comfort in order to um, to be able to speak into lives and, and to not lose touch and to not lose our testimony before people.
1: Okay. Uh, that is a really good question question, how can we seek God in holiness and purity while not losing our ability to relate to one another? And I think it goes even beyond that. How do we seek holiness without becoming people who look down on those that we don't see as holy? Because that really is often the bigger problem with religious people, isn't it, where in their pursuit of like righteousness, they start becoming condemning to others, judgmental, and all in all, unwelcoming. And here's where what we discover is the difference between truly seeking the face of God and not really seeking him. Because that's what Jesus was after in this chapter that that Cheryl was talking about today. That's what Jesus was really confronting. Like, you guys think you're seeking God. You're not. Okay? You think you're doing true religion. You're not. And as you said, uh, our beliefs really come out in our actions. Well, if we have found Jesus, if he truly is the one we're seeking, if we're truly seeking Jesus is going to bring bring forth his spirit living in us and that's going to bring forth a desire and a longing for those who don't know him to know him and we're going to see people through the eyes of grace because we've understood that we've received grace and it is true that we will not rejoice in sin and we will have a, a we will feel um, a personal desire to flee from sin and we will be grieved by sin that will all be true but at the same time what will be true will be an understanding that we're all sinners who who need Jesus just the same and so if we start, like, looking down on others, what that actually is, is that's evidence that we're not looking at the face of Jesus. And we're actually just seeking a type of religion that makes us feel good about ourselves, but is not based on a heart that, that is seeking God and, you know, in spirit and truth. So... Um, it, it's more than just um, the question, the answer to the question is, is more than just having good practices and having a good, you know, ministry philosophy. It's about having a heart that's actually seeking God, because the fruit of that will be um, inviting people to know him and to, to receive, you know, forgiveness the same.
0: What we receive from Jesus to others.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, we. I'm sorry. We're, we're going to have to cut this off. We get a lot of messages, but I'm going to give one more. And this one's a little more personal. I've been angry at God for a long time. It's keeping me from seeing His goodness and mercy. How can I get back to a place of submission to His will for me?
0: Um, I would. I would say, it. I, I'm, okay, that's a. It's hard to know like, without knowing all the details. Um, God can handle the anger and, and the, the disappointment that sometimes we have towards him. And so I would say bring it to him. Um, I would also say like, come and talk to a pastor at Westview. Um, I think that it's really important to voice that and to work through it with people in community. It's not healthy to be like, I'm angry or I'm struggling and to keep that by yourself. We're not meant to do this faith alone. We're meant to do it in community. And so bring people into your life who can speak to you, who can point out the lies that you might believe in, and who can speak truth to, to fight those, who can pray for you, who can just listen, who can walk alongside you. Don't, don't stay there. There's that saying, like, it's okay not to, it's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. Don't stay there in your anger. That's a great answer.
1: Yeah, just bring it to Jesus and bring it to to God's people. If there's anything in your life, whether it's anger or or some sort of sin issue or whatever, if there's something in your life that you feel like you can't get past, bring it to God, talk to him about it, and talk to those who you know love God. Share that at the body of Christ. That's what we're together here for. Um, Well, thank you, Cheryl, for that message. I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to continue in worship, and we also have a baptism. Father God, let us truly believe in you, Jesus. Let us seek you not with uh, not with hearts that are pretending, but with hearts that are actually seeking you, God, and help us uh, perceive you, experience you, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, let us have life, true life that overflows, true life that is Evident for the world to see true life that gives us boldness, courage to testify to you, to share what you've done as we go out in this world. Lord God, give us more of your spirit as we see more of you. Lord, open our eyes further and let us live for you, God. Um, Again, by your power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.